Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes, a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Annie Arnone. Annie's one of our colleagues at the Ryerson Review, and she's joining me in the hosting chair this week. Thanks for coming in. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So last week, the Ryerson Review of Journalism held a conference about how journalists should cover natural disasters. From Hurricane Harvey and Maria to the earthquakes in Mexico, it seemed like there was a lot of disasters this year. And it's often the images of those catastrophes that stay in the public's memory. Photos are often the most powerful way to tell stories of unimaginable tragedy. But when you're on the other side of the camera, there's a lot to think about. Annie, we wanted you to come on the show because you led a panel of three photojournalists at that conference. Yeah, um, I've been into photography for about 10 years now. I've always found it super intriguing that these people can go into these horrible situations and have the ability to, you know, snap these photos, keep a straight face, and do their job. Bringing these panelists in and speaking to people who have, you know, had experience from 50 years to 15 years, I thought that uh, it'd be cool to get their insight on what it's like being on those grounds. Who did you actually have on the panel? So yeah, like you said, we had uh, three panelists. Um, Peter Bragg was the first one. He's kind of a legend. He's He's been in the game for a long time. He's covered things from the earthquake in San Francisco. He's covered the HIV uh, pandemic in Africa. He's actually also a prof at Ryerson. He teaches a photojournalism class. We also had Ed Ooh. He's been a photojournalist for about 10 years. Ed showed us some of his work um, from the aftermath of the nuclear testing in Kazakhstan, which was really, really interesting. Um, and he's actually based in New York, so he flew out to see us. Um, and then finally, we had Blake Fitzpatrick. He's also a prof at Ryerson with the School of Image Arts. He, he gave us a little glimpse as to what he teaches the importance of disaster reporting, uh, what techniques do photographers use ethically, can they take some of those shots? Yeah, so there's a lot of ethical questions that come up around photography in disaster zones. And that was the first question you actually asked, right? Yeah. um, What I found interesting was Ed and Peter actually offered very different answers to this question. Ethically, photojournalists need to look, you know, at the scene they're covering and say, should I be taking this photo? Should I be capturing this person who is you know, lying here dead? Should I be capturing this birth, let's say, that is possibly private? Peter, I'll start with you. What do you think the ethics are surrounding coverage like this? I think in the, uh, over the years, I've traveled to over 80 countries. Half of them have been in the developing world. And there's a big difference. If I'm walking around in Toronto, I don't point the camera at anyone just to take a picture. If I'm traveling, in a developed country, generally it's been with the aid of an NGO. It might be a, an American or a Canadian NGO, but they have people on the ground who are locals, they speak the language, and they have already, in most cases, let everyone know this fellow is okay, he's working with us. Also, as tragic as it is, a lot of people are shell-shocked. And, um, you know, you, you do feel ghoulish in taking advantage of them. But on one hand, I, I'm there to take pictures to show the world. One thing about the um, tsunami, Indonesia, Uh, I came back after a week, I I printed up about 30 prints, large prints, and I posted them in the Brookfield place, that lobby, and World Vision put up an envelope or a little box with pamphlets and envelopes so that people could donate money, and they did. And so, uh, you know, you, you pick up the paper two days after a disaster, and they've all got ads plastered with a tragic photo of a child or whatever, and they want everyone to contribute. As, as tragic as it is, that's when these 
agencies make their most money is after a major tra disaster. And so I thought that by posting these photographs, large prints, uh, I was doing a little bit to help the people that I had taken advantage of. And I say it today, I wouldn't have said it back then. But yeah, you know, we, we do, the media does take advantage of disaster. Yeah, I think ethically, like I said, we just, when there is a disaster, I think what we have to do is we have to call attention to what's happening so that people, whether, so that can inform what charities to donate to, what action your government, whether you're in Canada or the US or wherever, what the response should be. I see journalism as a function of democracy in the sense that if you see something that you want your government to change, or if you see a disaster that you want your government to respond to, your individual voice is part of that democracy to say that the Canadian government should donate to this cause or aid in this relief or stop selling weapons to a certain country. That's the power that individual citizens have. And what we do as journalists are an extension of that power to let people be informed of that. So I think if you keep that in mind ethically, then it's easier for me to feel like I'm not exploiting the person in front of me, but amplifying this person's pain so that the world can react in a productive way. Um, recently, and this is not to do with conflict, but I was just covering the drug war in the Philippines, and this came up every single day where we would photograph the brutal aftermath of a tragedy and you would have to stick yourself without meeting someone, you would photograph someone at their worst moment where they're seeing a dead relative on the streets. And it's a horrible position to be in to have to take advantage of that. But in the back of my head, I'm always thinking like, the world absolutely needs to see this so that maybe there can be a discussion about whether this drug war is working. And so I think that's just something that if you internalize it enough and understand why you're doing it, um, that's the only ethic that you can follow. I'll just uh, add, a, I think those are all really good points, and I think that this is one of those big issues in journalism and documentary and photography. It's a big issue because the stakes are high. Uh, we're talking about people at their most vulnerable. And, and as, as Ed said too, I mean, and this, this is a person with a camera coming from a position of privilege in relation to the subject. But it, I would say perhaps it's also you know, a, 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 you know, a kind of privileged response to decide not to shoot. Because in a way, that's also a, a retreat from one's responsibility to the other that is there in front of you and is looking at you, uh, looking for some sort of response. And often people will um, look to journalists um, to, uh, you know, to really be their witness um, because they're not perhaps in a position to be their own witness. So it's a complicated bit of business. Um, one of the questions, um, that, that I is like to pose with my students um, in documentary, which I think is relevant here too, is always just to ask the question, what does that privilege lead to? Uh, what in taking those photographs will change for the subject, if anything will change for the subject? And if nothing's changing for the subject, then that does raise certain particular uh, ethical problems that, you know, that are worth addressing and thinking about. So what did you think of their responses? I thought it was interesting because the job of a journalist um, is to report and inform the public, um, but with a notepad and a pen, you're kind of able to blend into the background. I think with a camera, you're seen and you're heard, and it's a lot more difficult. Um, I think Ed made a really good point that the job of a journalist is to inform. You know, if you want to change something, the thing that kind of differentiates you from the general public is that you have the ability and you have the platform to, to 
write or to photograph. Um, Peter also touched on the fact that sometimes he catches himself um, kind of exploiting his subject in a sense. And I, I thought that was really interesting because, again, it's his job and he needs to take those photos if he wants to inform the public. But at the same time, he's using them, you know, to get to get the attention and to get the uh, to get the feedback itself. So so you also asked them about the emotional impact of their photojournalism. So why why did you ask that one? Um, we see these photographs a lot of, of devastation, um, and I, I believe that we don't think about the people behind the camera, which is natural because we're looking at these horrible, horrible incidences. But again, these people have, they have tough jobs. They're on the grounds, um, in the wake of these disasters. So they're, they're in the midst of these, uh, these horrific events and, and they're covering them. They're taking photos of them. They're taking photos of dead bodies. Uh, like, how does that how does that stick with you? Does it stick with you? Well, let's hear some of that clip. The photos you show, showed us, rather, um, were extremely emotional. What what were you feeling in those moments? Or do you recall a certain moment where you kind of just, it was almost unbearable for you to take those photos? <coughs> I, in the moment when I'm working, I, not that I'm heartless, but it doesn't affect me. Uh, other than I'm it affects me in that I'm, I'm saddened by the disaster, the, the loss of life, the misery, uh, and I live so well here in, in Canada, but I don't choke. Now, today I had a good day. I showed all those pictures, and there are a few of those that I sometimes, when I'm showing them, I have to pause for a moment just to clear my throat. And, and sometimes I just have to think about it, and I, I'll feel it. I mean, I... I got sappy when the Khan family was being attacked, the Gold Star family, when they were being attacked by Trump. Uh, I'm watching a sad movie, and you know, my wife says, you know, she can see I'm feeling odd about it. Uh, yeah, and I think part of that is that my age. Uh, I think as you get older, you get more sappy. Um, as a young man, I don't remember being that concerned. You know, it was yesterday, and I'm on to something else. When I started covering conflict and disasters. 2006, so this is 11, 12 years ago, I kept on thinking to myself, well, whatever I'm feeling at this moment, seeing the aftermath of an Israeli airstrike in Lebanon, for example, how could anything I feel possibly compare to the person in front of me? And I think about that, and I used to use that as a way to block myself from feeling the right to feel anything. And I would think, no matter what, at the end of the day, I get to go home, and I get to just live my life again and I chose to be here and I chose to do this whereas the people in front of me will forever be affected by this and that was like a really good shield for me for a while but then after a while uh, year after year after year um, that principle of not being affected and trying to defer to someone else's emotions not feeling that right not being able to feel that right to feel kind of just wears away and um, it's actually, it gets harder and harder the older you get because it becomes very cumulative, uh, the effects of trauma and the things that you see. And the weird thing is it actually affects me, I find, in it's when I'm back in the West or back home in Jerusalem, uh, sorry, in uh, New York right now. Um, it, it's only when you're back in your normality that you realize just how abnormal your experiences were. And I think to me coming back is the weirdest experience, and that's what's actually really hard. Um, and it, in fact, when you're editing your video or your footage, like in the same space that your what you associate with home is actually been, that's the hardest thing. 
when you're there in the field, everything is new and everything is different, but it's that jump between those two where it's, I, I don't know how to deal with it, and it's still been quite a struggle. I, I think that's really interesting that um, when you're in the field, you're sort of in reaction mode, but when you're back home, um, you're, you're front and center with, the, with the, the radical difference between two worlds, and, and it's hard to really um, place yourself in between those spaces. So I, I, can, I can well imagine that. What did you think of their answers to that question? I think I expected those answers. Um, often trauma is seen and felt later on in life. I think what they said about maintaining this level of strength while you're on the field is really important or else you can't you can't ultimately do that job, right? But, you know, they've seen some stuff. They've seen some pretty horrific things in their life. At the conference in general, a lot of the journalists that were there and that we were talking to um, had a lot to say about the kind of things they were experiencing um, and how to actually deal with it afterwards, which I thought was really important that they even touched on that, with the, especially with a room full of young journalists, that mm -hmm. it's okay to feel that way, it's okay to have to deal with that, and you should be. Mm -hmm. So after your panel, I nabbed one of the panelists, Ed U, and I talked in the studio um, about some of the topics that came up in your panel and through your questions. Like we were talking about earlier, after university, Ed went to Kazakhstan. So I got to ask him about his experience and how he tries to humanize people in his photography. So you've done a lot of work all over the world. Can you tell us about the work that you did photographing in Kazakhstan? So I went to Kazakhstan uh, because I read, I was taking a class actually in university, and I read about the after effects of nuclear testing in the Soviet Union. And it occurred to me that I knew very little about what happened. And so I think I went to Kazakhstan to try to understand what were the effects of the Cold War on a, on a civilian population that a lot of people in the West don't really know anything about? Um, you know, before I went there, to me, Kazakhstan was a place that I knew academically and I knew geopolitically where it fit into the Cold War. But I think from a societal point of view, like I don't think very many people in Canada or in the West know so much about it. Um, so... When I went, I went to this town called uh, Semipalatinsk, and, uh, or now it's called Seme, and I started meeting these people who were exposed to radiation, or their, their parents were exposed to radiation, or their grandparents were. And even to this day, there is a generation of people who are born with the effects of radiation poisoning uh, based off of Soviet nuclear weapons testing. Over 400 nuclear weapons were detonated in the Kazakh steppe and uh, millions of people were exposed to radiation. And so I was just shocked at the fact that I knew nothing about it. So uh, one by one, I started meeting people who were affected by the radiation. And a lot of the times, people would be born with, um, people would be born with uh, deformities. People would have radiation-related illnesses. Um, and so from that, I started to photograph the people affected and uh, became quite close to different families and spent a lot of time with them. And from these pictures started to tell the wider story of what happened there during the Cold War. So when I was in Kazakhstan, I think I tried to spend as much time as 
with people as possible. And often in like, I try very intimate spaces where people can be vulnerable, but also show their humanity. And so when I first met Myra, uh, she has at that time, a 16 year old daughter who uh, was born with microcephalia and she, um, she was conscious, but basically couldn't do anything for herself. Um, she had to all, Janor had to be by her mother's side 24 seven. And so I met them in the morning and, you know, we, I interviewed them and I learned about their day and I spent, we would keep going back there for days and days and days. And I thought to myself, well, like, how do I show that Janor never leaves her mother's side and a mother's love is such that she'll never leave her daughter's side. And so I asked, you know, is it okay to stay during the night and film you at night and I know that's a lot to ask because you know, like it's how does a journalist come in and ask to basically like photograph them in bed sleeping but that's what I asked and I built up that trust over multiple visits and I told them like look I want to show your emotion and how much you love your daughter and just that attachment and so I stayed there for quite some time and just like waited until they drifted off to sleep and I kind of got on the bed and photographed them from from above. And that's something that you can't just walk into. You need to build up to that. And the reason why, when, they, when I even, like, asked that, they said, well, what, why is that? Like, why would you want to photograph that? And I told them, like, look, I need to show this love and intimacy so someone, regardless of their culture, their language, no matter where they are, can relate to this image. And, you know, I showed them that photo and um, Janur, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, the mother started crying and she said, that's, that's every day for me. And um, if we can try to capture that semblance of intimate truth, I think that's, that's why we do what we do. Was it hard emotionally to be like learning about these people that like you hadn't, you didn't know about how this had really impacted them? It was difficult gaining people's trust at first. Uh, I think clearly when you're meeting people who have, um, who are born uh, handicapped or they're visually deformed, like it, there is a immediate reaction that a photographer is coming in to exploit, you know, their tragedy and to exploit the way they look. And so going in, that was what I had to explain to people is if people don't know what happened then how can any meaningful policy change come out of it? And how do we make sure that something like this doesn't happen again? And so I think that's the baseline going in, is you have to um, get people to trust what your intentions are. And uh, that, I think, at first, if people are um, hesitant to speak to you, you know, I think that's completely fair, because you're a foreigner coming in and you're asking to be a witness to very intimate moments, very private moments in people's homes. And that's a lot to ask. And I think you have to be sensitive to how people would feel being photographed. And I think um, what it takes is time, and it takes building a connection before you even start to take a photo. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times uh, in the stories I do, I will just go without a camera or go with a camera in my bag. And you connect with people is from human being to human being first. And only when I personally feel like I've 
been able to build up a sense of rapport and trust, and they understand what my intentions are and what I'm trying to do, do I maybe take out the camera and start to photograph? Every story is different, but I think in the story I did in Kazakhstan, it's a very specific context because it's not like there's anything immediate happening. And um, one question that people would ask me is like, you know, journalists come and go and nothing changes. Uh, how are you so different? And that's a question that I really struggled with when I first got there. And it's a question that I still ask myself to this day. Was it worth doing the story? Did I help at all? Did it lead to anything meaningful? And um, there are a few cases where the photos I published led to people internationally you know, donating money to uh, some of these families. There were cases where research companies would see someone who was disabled who couldn't move uh, and then they would, one person uh, was offered like a, an experimental device to help them like type, you know, and that's because they saw our photos. So it's hard to say if like my photos did anything super groundbreaking, but, you know, like I, I can at least feel to myself that like for the few individuals I photographed, like maybe something good came out of that experience and their story being shared with the world. And, you know, that's really all that you can really ask for sometimes. Earlier, you were talking about um, being wary of being exploitative. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just wondering if, A, you do ever feel that way. And uh, are there is there like a list of ethical things you have running in the back of your mind when you go to photograph someone? I think about exploitation and representation like every day. And I, I think about why is it that I'm here to do this? And oftentimes, like, maybe I'm not the best person to do a story. I think, you know, working in the Middle East uh, for the last decade or so, oftentimes, you know, as journalists, as foreign journalists, we are immune to so many of the things that local journalists face. You know, if there is backlash for any story, at best, I get deported. But if you're a local journalist in Turkey, for example, you can be imprisoned. So, for example, recently I was banned from Turkey. Uh, and it is, it's a shame that I can't go back, but at the same time, like, I'm really lucky that I have a Canadian passport that, you know, that's not my home. But if you're a Turkish journalist, like, you are in a completely different situation. I think a lot of times people don't think about the dangers that local journalists face. And the reason I bring this up is because there are things that sometimes only a foreigner can do because of, let's say, the dangers or having an outside context. And there's other stories that a local should do. And I think the best kind of journalism is when outsiders work in tandem with the people who have a stake in that community. Because oftentimes in conflict, it takes an outsider who has zero stake in both in any side to be able to seek out a more impartial version of truth. Whereas if you're living in a conflict and you are a part of, let's say, one sect, one culture, one religion, you know, you might be biased in a certain way. And so I think it really takes a consideration of how are we best representing truth by working with people there and by being an outsider. So when I think about all those things summed up, uh, sometimes then I think to myself, like, it, I, I can offer an objective point of view for, let's say, a conflict or a story that I have nothing to do with. But that applies in some contexts and other times like that doesn't apply because you're coming in as a Canadian or a Westerner clearly more privileged and you know like you you have your own 
preconceived notions of things. So I think it's just really important to keep all those things in check and always be questioning what you're doing, why you're doing it, and your motivations behind it. And you'll never have the right answer, but I think it's important to ask the question. In the panel and during the uh, RRJ conference, uh, you had talked about or noticed a a generational divide between uh, the people that were on the photography panel. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Well, I think the craft of journalism is an organic and evolving concept um, that also changes with the times that we're in. So a journalist who was alive in the 60s or the 40s or 2000s has, I think, they're beholden to whatever cultural construct or what's appropriate at that time. And so as that shifts, um, journalists also have to shift with it. And so I think what's interesting generationally is that now we're at a point where questions in Canada about, let's say, cultural appropriation are a really big discussion of why, like, who are we as journalists to go into other communities to, to cover certain things? Or what kind of stories are we telling and are we the best people to tell these stories? And it's not to say that these conversations didn't exist a while, like, in past generations, but I think maybe a lot of that's amplified now. So I would say that's, like, one generational difference. I think the other kind of generational difference is um, technology and the way that people consume the news. So if you're a journalist in, let's say, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and you're going to a conflict zone or a natural disaster or somewhere in a foreign country, chances are most of the people that you're photographing will never see the story that you do. They'll never read your story. They'll never see your photographs because... You know, what if the New York Times doesn't get delivered to Somalia? And so I think there was a lot less accountability for the photographer or the journalist going in with their subjects because most there was an understanding that subjects would probably never see these stories in the first place. And so I think with that, uh, journalists in the past weren't didn't have to be as accountable for their reporting or their actions. And that's not I know that's a little unfair to say that, but it's it's true in the sense that. You can go and do a story and then come back to New York or Toronto or London, and chances are you'll never interact with your subjects again. But I think in our generation of journalists, or like now people who are born and raised with social media, the internet, um, most of your subjects will probably, you're communicating them with them via Facebook. And therefore, like, they will see every picture that you take, every tweet you, you tweet in real time. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing, because you have to ask yourself, well, am I okay with this person seeing the way I'm representing them right now? And what would they say about that? And that could inform the way that you report. That could inform the kind of photo you take. Um, and that's not to say that like you should always be taking photos with the subject in mind, because if you're, let's say, photographing conflict, uh, you might not necessarily want to be so empathetic or sympathetic with the person you're photographing because they could be belligerents in a conflict. They could be any number of things. And in fact, actually, I've noticed uh, working in the Middle East and let's say Ukraine, where our reporting is scrutinized in real time, that can get us in actual a lot of trouble because if you write a critical article or if you take a photo that contradicts a government narrative 
you could be attacked for that or kidnapped or abducted or, you know, imprisoned for that immediately. And so that's where it turns. That's that's where I think that's a bad thing. But then again, if you're, let's say, photographing a marginalized community or a tragedy or something where you need to be especially sensitive and empathetic and they see that you're not in real time, then... I think maybe that's a good thing because then you're accountable to your actions and the way you represent things. And so I think that's something that, like, it's not to say that people in the past didn't have to deal with that, but I think now stories are, narratives are formed even before the story is written or the photographs are taken. And so in that climate, um, we're in a really interesting but also a really uh, complicated time in journalism and representation. Well, that's it for Pull Quotes this week. I'm Emily Pardo, and I was joined this week by Annie Arnoni. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no problem. I love being here. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. Find out more at rrj.ca and follow us on Twitter at Ryerson Review. This podcast is produced by Laura Howells, Jacob McNair, and myself, Emily Pardo. Thanks to Angela Glover for all of her technical assistance. Executive producers are Sonia Fada and Stephen Trumper. The Ryerson Review's conference on covering disasters was sponsored by CWA Canada, Ryerson's Faculty of Creative Arts and Design, the CJRU radio station, and TVO. So thanks to those sponsors. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. <laughs>